Hello, my name is Matthew James Bailey, and it is my pleasure to personally welcome you to the Conversation of the Decade with Rajiv Malotra. During this two-part series, you will embark into an enlightened conversation, listening to profound wisdom from Rajiv on the future of artificial intelligence, consciousness, and dharma. We will explore topics from Rajiv's remarkable book, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power, The Five Battlegrounds. Rajiv's work of art is a revelation for humankind, one that should be part of the archives for our human species. Ancients would have recommended his book for the Library of Alexandria. It is in my opinion that the conversation of the decade is ideal educational material for all universities and in fact, for every person on our planet. Everyone should be informed and involved to shape the future of artificial intelligence. As you will discover, Rajiv's book brilliantly discloses the dangers and the benefits of artificial intelligence. We leave no stone unturned. Our choices will determine the future for our civilizations, for our cultures, and the well-being of the human spirit. Will we choose a nourishing path for humankind and its partnership with artificial intelligence? Will our futures be beholden to elite organizations who wish to create a world based on their bias and their agendas? Or will you, the listener, and your civilizations choose a path that honors our cultures, honors your spiritual traditions, honors your values and your beliefs? Is it possible to create a new world future where artificial intelligence nourishes the human individual and society? It is not often that I come across a person like Rajiv Malotra. He surely is an adept of our time. So without further ado, I invite you to sit back and enjoy this two-part series, Conversation of the Decade, or rather, the conversation for your decade. And do check out the book, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power, The Five Battlegrounds. Thank you and Namaste. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Matthew James Bailey, founder of AIethics.world. I am delighted to be joined by the famous businessman, technologist, spiritual leader, philanthropist, civilization historian, and author, Rajiv Malorta to discuss his new book, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power, The Five Battlegrounds. I have read Rajiv's remarkable book. Quite frankly, I could not put the book down. Each page captured my attention. The narrative is easy to understand and every page is rich with information combined with thoughtful and challenging content. I admired the fearless courage it took to tell the truth and sensed a profound compassion to guide the future of humankind. Without a shadow of a doubt, 
Rajiv's book is an extraordinary piece of work. It is impeccably researched and is a Herculean contribution to guide humanity and its future with artificial intelligence. This book surely lays the foundation for the conversation of the decade. That is, how do we mindfully shape the future of human civilization and its partnership with artificial intelligence? It is a book that I am sure would have thrilled the authors of the Vedas, geniuses such as Alan Turing or Professor Stephen Hawking, and philosophers such as Aristotle. That is how good this book is. Welcome, Rajiv, and thank you for making time to discuss your new book. Thank you very much, and namaste to you. So who is Rajiv Malota? For those that do not know Rajiv, please spare a few moments of your time before we dive into what will surely be an incredible conversation on artificial intelligence and human civilization. Rajiv Malota was trained initially as a physicist and then as a computer scientist specializing in artificial intelligence in the 1970s. After a very successful corporate career in the US, he became an entrepreneur and founded and ran several IT companies spanning 20 countries. In 1994, following a spiritual experience, he founded the nonprofit Infinity Foundation in Princeton in the United States of America. Since its launch, the Infinity Foundation has given more than 400 grants for research, education, and community work to support university programs in spirituality, religion, and consciousness. Furthermore, the Foundation has also published a 14-volume series on the history of Indian science and technology. It has over 7 million followers on its Facebook page. Since founding the Infinity Foundation, Rajiv has dedicated his life to researching civilizations and their engagement with technology from a historical, social sciences and mind sciences perspective. Rajiv Malota also serves as chairman of the Board of Governors at the Center for Index Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, where the field of AI was officially launched in the 1950s. He is also a visiting professor at Jawaharlal Nehru University. He is on the advisory board at the Indian Institute of Advanced Studies in Shimia. Rajiv is currently talking about his book with national leaders within government and business, and is being featured in TV interviews. Without further ado, let's dive in into what will be the conversation of the decade. Rajiv, why should we be concerned about artificial intelligence? Well, first of all, thank you, Matthew, for this conversation of the decade. I think it is indeed the conversation of the decade, uh, probably the conversation of this generation. You know, the, uh, each generation or every few generations, there comes about some kind of a revolution. And this revolution disrupts the status quo, the equilibriums that people are used to, the comfort zones they have. 
And this, of course, this disruption creates a lot of opportunities and a lot of havoc, and, and it changes the world. Uh, it, it changes individuals, it changes communities, nations, and the entire world. So all of humankind's history is, uh, you know, milestone with such events. And so we are upon such an event. And we can think of it as good news. We can think of it as bad news. We can think of it as, you know, something which is up for grabs opportunistically. We can get ahead. We can also be scared of it. So all of those things are happening simultaneously. And they, they are natural to happen because of the magnitude of what artificial intelligence does. The reason this is so important is that until now, the technologies have enabled machines to replace or augment human muscles, what humans can do physically. And then more recently, the computer revolution allowed machines to do mental work. But this mental work was whatever humans could program into the computer because the computer could not learn on its own. So if I knew an algorithm on how you cook something, I could teach that recipe to someone else. I can teach it to a computer. And this is how I can teach payroll to a computer because the recipe or algorithm is quite well known. But what if I want, to, I want the computer to learn something on its own by simply observing how humans do it with no one writing an algorithm and saying, this is step one, this is step two. Uh, for instance, uh, how do people play a certain very complex game? If a computer can watch several games and figure out how they are playing it, not only understand what the rules are, but what's, what are the right strategies and be able to play it legitimately and beat the world experts. That's pretty interesting. That's the kind of thing AI does. So AI's genius is machine learning, which means that the machine is able to get a large amount of experiential data, a large amount of examples, a large amount of examples, for instance, in driverless cars, how you train driverless cars, you do not sit down and say, don't do this, do that. And if this happens, do this. It's not a set of rules. That would be the old programming method. But basically in a driverless car, the car has a lot of sensors, which are its eyes, and it, it makes a lot of decisions. So it's able to recognize faces, recognize cars, recognize bicycles, pedestrians, calculate their velocity, how they're moving around, compute which way they'll be, they're likely to move in the next second, two seconds, three seconds, and make decisions. Some of them are right, some of them are wrong, and, and get feedback on how, how each decision played out. And based on ongoing learning, it's able to become better and better. This is how children learn. A child gets up wanting to walk, falls down, its muscles record that this was not a right way to get up. It's eye, hand, motion, coordination, gradually gets better with experience until it's able to walk very normally. So this is how mental cognitive learning also happens. So the breakthrough is figuring out neural networks, deep learning, kind of mimicking how human beings probably learn or the best that neuroscientists are able to tell us. In a sense, you could say, this is computer science able to put into software what neuroscientists think happens in the brain. So it's, a, in a sense, a confluence of computer science and neuroscience. Of course, neuroscience is also advancing. And as the neuroscientists learn more and more about how the brain learns, how the brain cognizes, the computer people are right there to make their AI systems better. 
So we are at the beginnings of a huge era and already the applications that AI is doing are immense. And we can go through a whole, whole lot of these applications whenever you want to, uh, to illustrate that this is not science fiction. It is not some next century thing happening. Uh, you know, it, this is real. This is much of it is already happening and we'll, uh, more of it will happen during this decade. So this is what makes AI so important. And to ignore AI would be like somebody 200 years ago, not taking the industrial revolution seriously. It's as important as that. This is, this is often called the fourth industrial revolution. That's fantastic. Thank you, Rajiv, for your insights. So we're seeing an emergence of a new intelligence, uh, which is fascinating, isn't it? In your opinion, how, how well is the United States, China, and Indian do, India doing in advancing their vision for artificial intelligence? What are your thoughts on that, Rajiv? Well, you know, it's very interesting. Just a few days ago, the National Security Commission on, in, in, on Artificial Intelligence in the United States, which reports right to the president and is headed by Eric Schmidt, former chairman of Google. It, it issued its 756-page uh, report. And as you can imagine, I've been busy reading it and, and highlighting it. It's full of the latest thinking of the United States on what's going on. So the U.S. says that they are very concerned about China because China set this goal over a dozen years ago that by 2025, they'll be the number one artificial intelligence power in the world. And the U U.S. National Security Commission on AI feels that China is already on par in many areas and ahead of the United States in some of them. Hmm. It's, a, it's behind in semiconductors, but rapidly catching up. It's, uh, it's unclear how far it is in quantum computing because a lot of those uh, pro projects are secret, but the United States feels that it's pretty much on par, maybe a little ahead. So if you look at the different uh, building blocks of what constitutes AI, the area where China is considered ahead by the US uh, thinkers uh, include things like big data, the use of massive amounts of data because China has a large population and it has uh, no qualms about monitoring everything that goes on and scoring them and rating them and running their lives and kind of uh, a social control, turning society into a kind of a gamification, where gamification is a term that uh, is a technical term. It means that uh, to gamify means that behavior is rewarded or punished based on the outcome of that behavior, like you playing a game. And so computer gamification is, is, is the whole computer game industry where you gamify, you play it with a person, people play with each other, play, people play with machines. And based on their behaviors, they get points, they get medals, they get all kinds of badges. So they win when they reach a certain target, they get something out of it. So gamifying society in China means based on your behavior, which is constantly being monitored, all, your, all the facial recognition of everywhere you go, which lights you passed in your traffic, in your car, what, where you spend your money, all your messaging is read with natural language processing. So who you are, what you are doing, what your thinking is, what your likes and dislikes are, who you got in trouble with, who you got into an argument, who are your friends, mapping all their people on all of these things 24 seven, uh, it's able to kind of build a profile of uh, how good a citizen you are and how, whether you need to be encouraged 
so that you're a good role model for others or whether you need to be discouraged so it's a lesson for others. They started doing this with their Muslim community, Muslim population in a region which is Muslim to try to mold them into good behavior according to them, a good citizenship. Uh, and, and then they ex expanded it to the rest of the country. So this is something that only China has done on such a big scale. They are years ahead. So their algorithms are trained on reading psychology. You know, they've also come out with uh, sentiment analysis. What are the sentiments of people on a certain issue? Sentiment analysis is a part of AI that all the social media people do. So they look at what's the sentiment of the public towards a certain event, towards a certain people, towards a certain community. What are the sentiments of this community, that community, people of this or that social demographics? Sentiment analysis is a very powerful psychological device to monitor. So in the, in the case of China, they're looking at, you know, what are the, what are the emotions of people? There, there is a program they, they have uh, where they can see your face and, and the AI system can tell, is this anger? Is this joy? Uh, is this guy fearful? Uh, you know, what kind of an emotion he has? And now they're worrying, they are, they're trying to figure out how to read the emotions behind a mask because of uh, COVID people wearing masks. So now they're trying to look through the mask also. So imagine that these kind of skills are actually ahead of human beings because, you know, human being may not be able to look at 20, 30,000 people in a stadium all simultaneously in a split second, figure out who are the most angry of the lot. I mean, a human being to look at 20,000 faces and figure this out would, would not be possible, particularly in different lighting conditions. But the software can do that. The AI system can scan and tell you these are the, here is a mob. These are the people likely to get violent. They're angry. These are the people who are okay. These are some, somewhat sleeping. Uh, these are people who like what you said and they're even happy about it. So maybe they, are, they could be on your side. So, you know, with this knowledge simultaneously on such a large uh, scale, uh, the power is immense. The power is immense. And you can, uh, when, there's a, uh, when there's a trouble, uh, trouble something happening, uh, you can uh, read, you can listen to people's conversations that they are having on mobile phones. And you can figure out what they're thinking, what they're saying. Is the crowd about to get violent? Is they, are they about to dissipate and go away? So, you know, in terms of crowd control, in terms of creating riots, in terms of managing riots, uh, in terms of just moving people in a certain direction, these are immensely powerful things. And suppose somebody has a dashboard where they're getting all this summarized through the AI you know, and they're uh, all over the world or all over a certain town, or they can zoom in somewhere and they can figure out what's, what's going on psychologically, emotionally. This is immensely powerful. So the, the AI, I think, uh, has cracked the uh, human psychology. A uh, lot of people think it's just, uh, you know, able to, to do some simple things, uh, replicate them. But that, that attitude, that uh, statement about computers is the old software. Uh, hmm. before AI. That's true. But now AI has gone to, to the extent of actually getting ahead of human beings, uh, because hmm. many of the things I just described, human beings cannot do. Hmm. That's quite fun. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? So what's India doing in its strategy for artificial intelligence, Rajiv? So, you know, uh, just to sort of summarize the US and China, uh, uh, I would say that uh, they are neck to neck as a summary of all these things. They are neck to neck. Uh, the U.S. has advantages in semiconductors, uh, which are needed, uh, you know, companies like NVIDIA. They're needed for uh, super fast computers that AI runs its algorithms on. 
And uh, a lot of the semiconductors comes from Taiwan. China is, of course, threatening Taiwan uh, and South Korea. Uh, but the U.S. has a lead over China. And the U.S. now wants to domesticate in this new uh, National Commission, National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. One of the important things is they're putting in a $25 billion right now to, domestic, to make the U.S. once again ahead of everybody else, including Taiwan and South Korea, and mm. certainly stay ahead of China. So mm. this is an area where U.S. Is, has an advantage and is probably going to be able to maintain that advantage. But on the other hand, in quantum computing, which, takes, which goes beyond conventional computers, beyond conventional semiconductors, China may well be ahead. So you can, you can look at different aspects and see who's ahead where. China has a lot of military applications. Uh, they just launched uh, 12 driverless submarines in the Indian Ocean, which are for surveillance. So these, are, these are, don't have need human beings and pilots and all that. They can stay underwater indefinitely. They don't need a food supply. There's no human who's going to fall ill or all that. So these things can stay underwater and they can go around silently and do surveillance of the Indian coastline, uh, you know, both the natural coastline and the traffic that goes in and out and stay there for months. Uh, there are 12 of them. Uh, the CIA announced it and then the Indian government confirmed, Indian media confirmed it. And probably China will have 100 of them. And they'll probably ha they probably already have them in the South China Sea and elsewhere, because once they've got it right, they can scale it and have lots of them. So, you know, this is, a, this is a, something you can't beat with uh, any human kind of a thing. Uh, China is also building robotic soldiers. So they can fly, they can, uh, they can fight in the Himalayas and they don't, need, they don't need to worry about cold weather or food supply and all of that stuff. And uh, uh, so they have these advantages and China is ahead in drones. Uh, China is ahead in lithium ion technology, which is the future of electric vehicles. So there are a lot of areas. I would say the United States is going to remain number one in innovation. Mm -hmm. China has taken a lot of this uh, by, by uh, clever, slippery, sneaky means. You could also call it theft. They, of course, deny it. China took some of this technology legitimately by having contracts where you want to manufacture your iPhone in my country. I will do it for a cheap rate, but then you need to give me the design because if you're if you going to manufacture it, we need to know the design. Of course, uh, once I know the design, then I can start figuring out how to make my own. So some of the, uh, the knowledge transfer, technology transfer were very legitimate. The Chinese are saying, look, we had a contract. You gave us this on, under contract. So why are you complaining? And so it was a naivete and foolishness of the American side. Both the government didn't worry about it too much. And, the, and because we underestimated the Chinese intelligence, we underestimated how clever the Chinese are and how strategic they are, and didn't think that they'll actually outsmart us using our own technology. So when you, when you uh, uh, look at the past, it's full of Chinese being able to take over military technology also, a lot of missile technology uh, that they, they took from the United States in a very secret way, a lot of hacking of American uh, mm. sites to bring huge amount of uh, you know, design into the Chinese hands. And also uh, human spies, a lot of Chinese in the United States as students, as scientists have been arrested and prosecuted because they were involved in these things. In a nutshell, I would say that the United States is likely to remain the innovation leader and the innovation engine of the world. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, ever since the early 1900s, you've seen uh, one industry after another, uh, the Wright brothers for aircraft, uh, Henry Ford for automobile, the list goes on and on, the invention of the internet, all kinds of things, this is a long list. It's not only invented particular machines and devices and technologies, but entire industries, yeah. entire industries have come up. And this is not going to change. So I'm extremely confident of the future of the United States for its innovation, in spite of all the problems that happen on the surface, in spite of all the politics, all the nonsense that goes on, deep down, the United States is a very innovative country, and that's not going to change. Uh, now, I want to talk about India in the context of the leadership competition between U.S. and China. And China has its advantages because of scale. U.S. has its advantages because of uh, innovation. And China has a lot of money also. But look at India. India has the potential, but it has not achieved that potential. India has the potential of being an innovative people as a culture. In, India has a huge amount of uh, diverse data, so it could harness it and organize it as big data. But, you know, India lags at least 10 years behind China in things like quantum computing, in artificial intelligence in general. If you look at the total investments in AI, India is not among the top several. If you look at the number of patents, India is not there. If you look at the actual economy of uh, AI-based things, India is very tiny. And yet Indian individuals in their personal capacity are all over the world, very brilliant in, and involved in all kinds of AI fields. So India has rented its brains for other people to use for their technology rather than using these brains for its own technology. So you'll find Google and Facebook and all these kind of big companies, big tech companies have thousands and thousands of Indians in their R&D, both in the United States and also these companies have set up such establishments in India to bring in a lot of brains there. NASA has a large number of Indians. IBM has more Indians than non-Indians now worldwide. So, you know, the, the Indians as individuals have done very well, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's sad that India as a country, neither the industry nor the, uh, the, the government have been able to uh, take this raw material of talent. So the two raw materials that India has, uh, one is the big data potentially that can be used like China has because of its diverse population. And the second is brains, but it hasn't really used these properly. So AI is not there the way it ought to be or the way it could be. India should be at least a close second or third in this three-person thing. But India is not even third. I mean, after US and China, there's a big drop. There is European countries, UK, Germany, France. Then there's Russia, there's Japan, there's Korea, there's Israel. There are all those countries uh, before you think of India, uh, India as a owner of patent and intellectual property in the artificial intelligence area. Now, a lot of things have happened in the last six, nine months as a reaction to Chinese aggression on the border. So Indians have woken up and they're concerned and they're making announcements, increasing budgets, having conferences on AI, a lot of uh, buzz around that. It's all reactive. When China attacks, then there's a sudden talk about why did it happen? Somebody says it has to do with AI. Uh, when China, right now, some New York Times put out a report that uh, the Chinese uh, almost brought down the, uh, the electric grid in Mumbai. 
and uh, this is all AI-based hacking. And so again, people are concerned. It's more like a response and a reaction to what somebody else has done to us, that sort of thing, rather than proactively saying, here is something we are to master for the next 10 years and be like right at the top. So I, I feel that uh, uh, India is in trouble because it's not been able to get ahead of the curve. Uh, and and uh, also the, the, the loss of data and privacy and so on, on on the social media, every day, every second, so many people just giving away all, all this data is, is also a, a big concern. And my book examines several particular data points, particular episodes and examples where India has had bad policies. That's fantastic. Thank you very much for your insight. I personally think that India have a huge potential to play in the future of artificial intelligence, and I think your wisdom is absolutely on the money. Um, so, so let's talk about artificial intelligence. Um, how is AI linked to the Western view of thinking, its approach to consciousness and science? So, you know, the Western mind sciences neuroscience is very sort of mechanical, is very, uh, the, 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 what you think of intelligence is, is going to reflect in how you go about doing artificial intelligence. Mm. I mean, it's like you want to make artificial diamonds, you got to understand what diamonds are and what you think of diamonds and what's special about them. And then you try to put it into artificial diamonds. So the artificial intelligence is built on Western materialistic neuroscience. Uh, which says that uh, biology and life is nothing but a machine. And this machine can be modeled as algorithms. It's like running like a computer, except it's not silicon, it's biological computer. And once you've hacked it, you can, rep you can make better versions of it. Uh, you can copy it into silicon. You can put in an implant and it'll interact with the biological computer. So the future, according to the Western approach is uh, you know, silicon interacting with, with biological material into hybrid kind of computation. So the question, of course, is uh, what does that have to do with consciousness? Uh, and, and AI, as it currently exists, it really is not able to get into that level. Uh, AI is merely taking the external behavior of an intelligent being. It's not me internally, how my conscious being is, how I'm feeling but my behavior. So by my gestures, by my expressions, by what I say, uh, you know, it can, it can infer, um, you know, and then it can replicate my external mannerisms and behaviors and so on. And also my thinking, it's basically looking at the language that I produce and, and based on analysis of that, it's able to figure out, okay, now he's angry or he's happy or he's talking about this or that subject. So the, Artificial intelligence, uh, as it has existed today and is likely to exist in the, in the future, or at least in the near future in the Western world, is basically built on materialistic biology. And, and, and I feel that that's also a problem because it's turning human beings into biological engines, biological machines. Uh, and one of the future... Uh, futurist uh, things that I think will happen is uh, what I call the internet of bodies. Mm. Uh, I haven't written about this, but it's some, one of the subjects I'm writing about the internet of bodies and also the internet of minds. 
where where uh, uh, the the these device these uh, entities the body as an entity and the mind as an entity treated like a mechanical device uh, connecting them uh, like an internet a web connecting bodies so a whole lot of uh, uh, possibilities would exist with groups of people that are networked in this way uh, and so I, I, I see this coming uh, maybe maybe 10 years from now, but experiments are already happening. Uh, so this is the direction that I would say artificial intelligence is going, uh, you know, right now. And, and I'm writing a, sequ- a series of books, this being the first one only, where I want to take uh, the issues I've opened up in this book and go much further, much deeper in, and pursue alternatives to the current trajectory of artificial intelligence. That's fantastic. Um, and so do you think that um, artificial intelligence itself will ever attain consciousness or self-awareness? So I think artificial intelligence won't attain consciousness, but I think there can be something called artificial consciousness or augmented consciousness because you know the 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 thing is uh, uh, right now matter does impact consciousness. For instance, you give someone an anesthesia; it's matter, and it's a chemical, and the person's consciousness go he becomes unconscious. And you take a few cups of coffee and you wake up. Uh, so obviously there is a materialistic uh, boost to your alertness, and also or the other way around. Uh, that, uh, you know, so there is a material effect on consciousness and there's also consciousness effect on matter because as a conscious person, I can choose to pick up a pencil. Uh, I can choose, I can make, make my muscles move a certain way. So my conscious side makes choices on how my muscles and my body is going to move around. So consciousness uh, can, interacts with matter and matter interacts with consciousness. So it is not some otherworldly, spiritual, mystical thing that is beyond reach. Uh, uh, after all, it, in the Vedic tradition, consciousness is supreme, consciousness is primary, and it manifests as matter. So since consciousness is manifests as matter, there is obviously some relationship between the two. But I think that uh, the future is the Vedic future, which I'm going to elaborate more in my future, uh, future uh, next set of vo- volumes, has a lot to do with what the rishis have discovered in terms of the nature of our being going inside. It is not a mechanical manipulation through algorithms, but it is attaining a higher consciousness through means that are built into our into who we are. So the, the rishis have discovered the map, uh, and this has been replicated over thousands of years. A lot of people keep emerging. I, I was lucky. I had a guru who's no longer in the body, but um, uh, left the body a couple of decades ago and who was a manifestation of this, never claimed anything, never wanted money or fame or control over people. But you could just see that. You could experience that. When you were in the presence of such a person, you could actually feel that and some of it would come, come and influence you. And this is the transformation that I had, why I gave up everything in order to understand this more and live a different kind of life. So uh, the ability for... Uh, super advanced beings uh, has not been uh, publi- uh, not been perfected on a scale. Uh, the, the problem is, that if you call it a problem, that this kind of ability to achieve higher consciousness is rare. 
it happens, but it takes effort at long, many years. It's not you push a few buttons and it hap would happen overnight. So the amount, the, the, it's a longitudinal process and it's not a guaranteed process. Uh, out of every, in a generation, out of so many billions of people, a small number will be this kind of enlightened. Uh, the, what AI offers is something very different, but scalable. So AI says I can, I can turn uh, uh, hundreds of millions of people to be AI enabled and all wearing augmented goggles and, and doing different things and having some implants. And to whatever extent I can enhance their capability, the point is I can do it on a very big scale. And you, the spiritual side, the, the consciousness side, might be able to do it on, with a few people, but you're not going to be able to do it on such a large scale. So those are the trade-offs as I see them. That's great. Thank you very much. So let's dive a little bit further into what you talk about, Western universalism. So for our audience, what is extreme Western universalism? And is this the best approach to take all societies and cultures forward in their destiny with artificial intelligence? What are your thoughts on that, Rajiv? So, you know, every society has its own distinct experiences. Uh, you know, what happened to a particular civilization and its people and its history has to do with their, their uh, geography, their uh, weather conditions and what happened, whether there was a food shortage or, and, and socially what kind of society it was. So they experienced different things. And so the, no society can really claim that its experiences are universal. I mean, it, they are particular to that civilization because the historical events and geographical specific, specific characteristics are very distinct for each one. Um, so the West experienced, Europe is, was where the West started and then it's expanded into America. Uh, so European history was very specific. It was the product of, you know, what happened in ancient times, the, the marriage of the uh, the, 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 the Romans where the Romans started this in a, in, in a certain way, the origins of the West and this competition between Rome and Greece. I, I, I talk about it. Uh, the Romans having the hard power, the Greeks having the soft power. Uh, they had the culture, the art, the music, the sculpture, the philosophy, all that soft power. And the Romans had the brute force, the engineering, the military, uh, the money to go and conquer and kill and take slaves and all that. And this competition in the Mediterranean led to ultimately, uh, uh, you know, uh, about a hundred years before Christ or so, uh, famous battles where the Romans defeated the Greeks. So now the hard power took over the soft power. So now we have the Greek or Roman synthesis hybrid where the, the uh, certain parts of the Greek became assimilated. And now we have this beginnings of what became the West you know, it's very interesting. In the early day, early centuries of the recorded uh, period of uh, this history of the Mediterranean, uh, the term Occident referred to uh, the Roman side, and Greece was Orient. So Greece was Oriental. So right now, people when they talk about the Orient, they think it's China. It's moved further east. But at that point in time, the Hellenistic culture was considered Oriental by the, by the Latin culture, the, the Roman. So the break between Roman and Rome and Greece was between us, the Occident, and them, the Orient. Very interesting. And then 
Greece becomes part of this unity. And so the Orient gets pushed further out. Those guys out there must be the Orient. And that's where there's India, China, all of that. So it's a very interesting how the Orient keeps getting pushed away and the Occident then expands as the West. Then the third thing, the third civilization, the third culture that is brought into this mix of Roman and Greece is, is Christianity, which is also in the Mediterranean, but on the South side. So that's where, uh, you know, modern day Israel, that is where the whole Jesus phenomenon happens. And it's at odds with the Romans in those days. But then uh, in the fourth century, Emperor Constantine, the Roman Emperor Constantine has this experience and becomes a Christian. Uh, and that's also a very interesting story, the whole narrative on how, what experience he had and he became Christian and he adopts it as a state religion. So now the Romans have also di started digesting uh, Christianity uh, into themselves. So the Romans become the digestion stomach. And I have a book called Theory of Digestion coming up where I talk about stomachs of digestion. And I talk about the different kinds of stomachs, their properties, different kinds of stomachs in history and the different kinds of food that they have digested, civilizations that they have digested. And then I come up with a whole theory of how, how world civilization, world history can be seen as this kind of a play among different stomachs, digesting different things and, and uh, advancing, evolving and so on. So Rome as a stomach digests Greece and then it digests Christianity. And that's the origin of what we call the West with Greece, Rome, Christianity, and then it starts moving north to more and more parts of Europe. When I meet my friends in Northern Europe, I tell them that, you know, for the longest part of your history, you were what, what became known as pagan people. I mean, you were more like the Vedic people. You really don't understand it. Your history as a Greek or Roman Christian from the Mediterranean, uh, synthesized and brought to the north is relatively recent. Is relatively recent. Some parts of uh, Europe became Christianized less than a thousand years ago, and 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 uh, and the people uh, who did not Christianize became known as uh, uh, pagans, uh, which meant uh, kind of country bumpkins. You know, if you are if you are a civilized uh, kind of cosmopolitan person, properly educated, you are to be Christian. You are to be having this Roman, Greek, Christian kind of a lifestyle, and then you are proper. You are civilized. That became known as civilized. And then those who are still uncivilized, they're sort of like pagan, like bumpkins. So this is uh, this is the kind of the history of the West, if you were to think about it. Now the West. Uh, the West has, and then of course, more recent things, the Protestant revolution and science and, you know, uh, science and religion being separated and Catholics and Protestants, uh, you know, their fights and all that, all that is well known. Um, so this is a very unique crucible uh, in which unique things happen. And, and the idea of the West is created. Uh, and this is a geographically unique thing. Uh, this is a historically unique thing. New, interesting thoughts and philosophies happen. And, you know, other parts of the world didn't have this. They had their own issues. They had their own problems. They, they, they had their own fights and their own uh, whatever they went through, the experiences. So the, the Western universalism, the word universalism got applied because with colonialism, uh, the spread of Western 
power to other parts of the world meant that this idea of these ideas that the West had developed for itself based and in response to its own history and its own situations and problems, this got exported often by force. And it got exported to others to tell them that this is the universal thought. So Hegel famously then solidifies all this uh, into sort of the history of world being a history of the West that has to go and happen everywhere else. And he, he said, uh, the, the West, the, your present, he told the non-Westerners, your present is like our past. And our present is your future. Hmm. Now, what a lot of arrogance. I mean, to tell somebody that, listen, I was like you are. Okay, I, I was, but I've evolved. And the way I am is how you are to be. So it was equated with parent child, uh, a, a parent telling a child, uh, I was like you are a child. And my f- f- uh, present as an adult is your future. So it's like uh, the West is the parent that has to raise uh, all the non-West as children. Uh, and he compared it with, a, with some kind of a vehicle where there's an engine driving and, uh, or, or the horses are driving or the moving, uh, the, the, the entity, the agency that's driving and the others are being moved forward. Uh, kind of, it's our burden. We have to uh, bring all these other people along. And pretty nasty racist things he had to say about Native Americans as people who cannot be civilized, who cannot be civilized. So whatever is happening to them, you know, is unavoidable. Uh, too bad, but that's collateral damage, the march of civilization. And also about African-Americans, he felt that slavery is the only way that they're going to be civilized. So this uh, uh, Western universalism has a lot of trauma, a lot of uh, persecution and bad things happening in it. Uh, Many of them not resolved, many of them still not resolved. So when you look at the, in the United States with the new Trump phenomenon and the new red states and blue states and the conservatives and liberals, actually these are very old conflicts within the West that keep playing out once in a while. And and even the, uh, the proper reconciliation has never happened between the Greek Hellenistic thought, which was very much closer to the Vedic thought and mm-hmm. on the one hand, and the uh, Christianity on the other hand. This is a very, uh, the Hellenistic, uh, you know, uh, versus Christian has never been totally resolved into a unified, uh, into a unified thought system. So Western universalism is filled with schisms. It's filled with a kind of forced synthesis and under pressure, like there is now pressure in the United States uh, at moments of pressure, it falls apart. It's like different camps emerge and they start fighting each other because the origin of Western universalism is not based on a single, on one single metaphysical principle, but different principles being brought together. So when you, when you digest, that's what happens. You digest different kinds of things and you try to harmonize them. So the story of Western universalism is in one of my earlier books called uh, Being Different. Uh, Being Different is, uh, the byline is uh, an Indian challenge to Western universalism. I'm basically giving a Vedic challenge to Western universalism in their entire book. That's fantastic because I want us to dive into this. And this is why I think your book is exceptional because your understanding of human civilization and its evolution must play strongly into how different cultures understand 
the different agendas that are driving their approach to artificial intelligence. Yes. And this, you, this is why I really believe that the fact you've taken a human civilization point of view and, uh, and, and said, look, this is really important not to ignore because are you being taken to a philosophy that doesn't honor the lineage of your cultures? And the lineage of your entire nation is such an important conversation, Rajiv. So let's dive into the Vedas. Can you explain to our audience, Rajiv, what are the Vedas and how important, in your view, is the Vedic view uh, of humanity and how they can help us to steer the future of artificial intelligence? And then we're going to go into that because I think that's important. Well, this is a very important question you ask, and I, I'm, I, and I wish more people would ask this question, because, you know, the presumption is that uh, something old like Vedas, maybe we equate it with religion, and if we reject religion because we're very scientific, therefore we should also reject the Vedas. This is a very common attitude, but this is kind of a colonial attitude that Indians have also adopted, very unfortunately. The, the Vedas and the Dharma tradition which is what the Vedas describe themselves as, is not the same thing as religion. Uh, because uh, this is very interesting and very important to understand. Uh, religion is, uh, in the Western sense, is what I call history-centric. So it's a certain set of events that happen in history, and those events are non-reproducible. The, the event of Jesus is one of a kind. The event of Moses and the different things are one of a kind. You cannot have the Moses experience no matter what. I cannot have the Moses experience. You or I or anybody, even the Pope, cannot have the Jesus experience because there's only one son of God and another person cannot have the son of God experience. So this business of uh, uh, the problem that is to be solved by the Western religions uh, requires a God to make a historical intervention, which has happened only once, which is non-reproducible. And if you forget that history and you forget that one book, there's no way you could recover it. It's not encoded in nature. It's not encoded in, it's not possible for you to discover it or to attain a higher state of consciousness and be, be in the same place as Jesus was and have that experience and know the truth for yourself. It's not possible. You have to read it. You have to read it the way it was described historically in a book of history. And so, and that book of history, recording actual events which happened in those days at that moment in time, that has been transmitted over a long time. And I have to believe its credibility and I have to listen to it. And that's the only, my, my access to the ultimate truth is only through history because that history is unique. Now, this is very unscientific because whatever led Newton to discover some laws, we can replicate them today. We can reproduce the Newtonian experience. There is no experience he had that we couldn't experience, replicate and verify for ourselves. We don't have to worry about the history of Newton. We don't have to say, do we believe him? Was he a good man? Uh, if somebody finds out that he was abusive to his wife or he didn't pay his taxes, he had immoral character, oh, then we got to reject his laws of physics. That's not true because the laws of physics that he discovered were always there, available for any human being to discover. And whether he was a good or a bad person is irrelevant. That's a separate matter. So we don't, we don't have to worry about trusting Newton he happened to tell us something we can verify for ourselves. So this business of reproducibility 
in, in every epoch and humans being able to discover something for, for themselves again and again is, is, a cent, is central to science. And this is also characteristics of Dharma because in Dharma, there is no claim that is made by the rishis, which they say that this is the only claim it ever happens. It'll never happen to anybody else. This is historically unique. Never say that. In fact, the rishis always say that you can have the same experience and so can you and so can you and so can every single human being. So this is a this is a quality that every person, given the right training, given the right tapasya, the right path, the right spiritual way of life is able to have. And this is what every one of you should have. It's just that the rishis have presented to you as a kind of a, uh, their experience that you can take as a starting point and validate it for yourself. And that is what I validated for myself. And that is why I changed my whole life. Because otherwise, such a dramatic thing would not never have happened to me. I, nobody sensible would do such, such a dramatic thing uh, unless it was an extraordinary experience. So this is not something I would read from a book and believe it. I mean, you know, so the primary, one of the primary differences between dharma and, and religion is the, his, the religion is locked into a, a dependency on history uh, of other people in some other part of the world thousands of years ago as conveyed through various people because it is intrinsically impossible and unavailable today. Whereas Dharma says that is certainly not the case because there is nothing historically unique about, uh, in terms of the nature of the ultimate reality, which we are not able to experience again for ourselves. So the nature of reality is present everywhere for discovery, according to the Dharma. And the nature of ultimate reality is, was only available at one time for one person to listen to and then teach to the rest according to religion. So this is a very big difference. Think of it like uh, there's a radio transmission that's just going on all the time. It's repeating itself. And anyone who's got a tuned a radio that can tune into it can listen to it. So somebody called Einstein tuned in and he got his E equals MC squared. But even, there were, even if there was no Einstein, we, some other person could tune in and get the same thing. So the message is there. The truth is there. It's available for discovery. And it's, it's available for discovery by anybody who can tune in. So, so conditioning your mind or deconditioning it out of all the baggage we're carrying, which is what the whole practice of yoga, meditation and advanced practices of dharma are. So dharma is more about uh, helping a person uh, become such that this person can then receive the same message the rishis did, uh, the ultimate reality for themselves. And such a state is called enlightenment. And so to achieve enlightenment is, is available to everybody. And this is what the experts who have understood it and done it can teach others. Some are higher up, higher along the way than others, and they can help others. And this is not a, about reading history. This is not about a history lesson that somebody said this. It's not. Imagine if physics was studying the history of Newton, something like that, or studying the history of Einstein. That one day Einstein, being a nice guy, he was doing this and that, and he wrote this, and he told us that, and therefore we should believe in it. I mean, physicists today would laugh at it. They would say, "I, I, I, I mean, my." Uh, my ability to understand physics and the fact that I, I accept a certain theorem or a th law of physics has nothing to do with what I think of Newton as a person. I mean, he may be a great guy, but maybe he's not. Or maybe they proved that Einstein was a, not a good human being, but it has nothing to do with it because I have the faculties 
between me and the instruments, we have the faculties to validate it for ourselves all over again. So the dharma is a very powerful statement, metaphysical statement about the nature of reality being always discoverable by a state of consciousness that is always achievable by human beings. So human beings have the hardware, if you will, to uh, raise our consciousness to a, in a, to a level where in, in a state of enlightenment, we would experience every single thing the rishis did. So this is, this is really the most important difference between religion and dharma. So from this, many other things come. Uh, you know, because religion is so obsessed with transmitting the historical authenticity, therefore it has to institutionalize. Therefore, it has to punish those who disobey because they're going to spoil this whole transmission of history. Whereas Dharma is more relaxed, saying that, you know, look, if they burnt down all our stuff and they destroyed all our stuff, the point is human beings already always have this ability to re rediscover. So even if, even if all the monuments were destroyed and the books were burnt and whatnot, the point is if there's one human being left who's a, who's a yogi, he could, he could with, given enough time, eventually eventually he can discover all these things in himself because this is available to him. The, the postmodernists call it uh, deconstructing text. Deconstructing text. And I keep telling them that what if the text is my own condition being inside? I, 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 the, the challenge is I got to deconstruct my own self. It's not some external piece of thing written out. It is not a product of some culture or some intellectual writer somewhere. The text is the body. So the text is the idea of self. I'm going to deconstruct that. I'm going to get myself freedom from that by going deeper into that. And, and I'm going to have this enlightenment. So the, the, the Vedic, which is also Buddhist, all the Dharma traditions are in, on par as far as this is concerned. And these differences come much later in history. But in the origins, you know, these people debated, discussed with each other like peer reviewed scientists. Like scientists saying, I have a telescope and I saw this and here's what I think it must be. And the same way those guys are saying, I had this state of mind, this state of uh, meditation and here's what I discovered. And these are the tools I used to practice this meditation and here's what I found. And the other guy experiences something and he compares it with what he experienced and we have discussions. So it's like peer review of each other. So th th this is these, these only much later, they became into you know, fossilized separate camps and all that as isms. But at, originally, this dharma is a very open architecture. I call it an open architecture for discovery, open architecture for self-understanding and discovery and, 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 and achieving, manifesting the human potential for higher and higher states of consciousness in which all the received knowledge is up to a, good up to a point, but I can go beyond it. I can go beyond it. And I, can, and I don't have to be limited to what somebody taught me in history. And I don't have to uh, believe historical truths or disbelieve historical truths based on some credibility or based on some, somebody punishing me if I don't do it. It's none of that. So the dharma, because of all of this, is not very big on institutions, on asserting power. Uh, it, it's, it's more about, you know, if this guy doesn't want to follow this path, fine, you know, it's up to him. It's not my job. So the other thing is that uh, in religion, there is a collective salvation. 
Now, this is very smart. God, very smart, he wants to organize people into army or, or whoever wants to organize people into army in the name of God says that, you know, unless we're all doing it, it's no good. So I'm going to whip you back and ship because you're violating. It's like we're on this boat. And if you misbehave, the whole boat will sink and I'll also sink. So your behavior is important to me. It's, it's relevant to me. So if, if, you don't, if you're a non-believer, then, you know, God will punish all of us. So now this kind of a thing doesn't happen because in the case of in the dharma, you know, my ability to achieve this higher state of enlightenment and or not achieve it and commit all kinds of karma and have the results of that karma is entirely my, my thing. And yours is yours and everybody's is theirs. So I am not obsessed with, you know, getting everybody in line and kick ass and get this guy in shape and whip this guy and conquer that fellow and say, okay, now you guys, uh, you know, all of us have to be compliant with this rigor and all of that doesn't, doesn't happen in, in dharma. So the dharma, therefore the whole flow of dharma through history has been different. Even at times when India was materially very powerful and very rich, it didn't want to go and invade and conquer anybody. It didn't want to. Because it was just not, you know, there was a huge flow of knowledge from India to China, which Chinese historians write how emperor after emperor for dynasties, they would send people, the most learned people to India to learn and bring knowledge behind the way now people from around the world go to the Ivy Leagues and bring knowledge behind. So India was this Ivy League in those days and places like China, Mongolia, Japan later, as you know, Cambodia, all these kind of places would send their chosen, the best selected people to bring this knowledge behind. But India had no ambition to go and send an army and convert those guys and collect taxes from them and tell them that you pay tribute to this emperor sitting in India. There's not a single instance where any Indian ruler, emperor, whatever, no matter how powerful or rich they were, wanted to go outside and conquer people and make them slaves and collect money out of them and so on. Because the dharma just didn't care about you know, doing this with other people, the concern was more like, how do we enrich ourselves and, and enlighten and discover? So that is, that is the uh, beauty and magnitude of dharma uh, and contrasted with uh, the situation of uh, religion. And I feel that uh, this discussion on dharma versus religion is very important in order to understand the distinctiveness of Western universalism because Western universalism adopted this character, a kind of a chauvinism, a kind of an aggression towards others. And, and uh, even after becoming very scientific, even after clipping the wings of uh, Christianity within Europe and becoming very scientific, this particular character continued. And so Western universalism has these qualities built into it. And any, uh, any ethos, any social system, any scientific uh, um, idea like artificial intelligence, anything which is uh, AI's uh, ideal of what is higher intelligence are all colored by this kind of a foundation. 